Hi, it's always a pleasure to be here, uh, even with very short notice. And I just want to be clear that I'm going to be speaking my words, not Jen Crow's, so don't hold her accountable. <laughs> and also to lift up Ruth McKenzie, is, who, as you can see in the order of service, picked up a lot of things today she wasn't counting on, and to acknowledge that I was going to be preaching in Burnsville, and Terry Bernor, our intern, is down there covering for me. So what a fabulous team everybody is, right? <laughs> so the poet says everything. One person, just one person, to whom we could confess anything, not just things criminal, petty thefts, white-collar crimes, insurance scams, illegal drug use, cheating on taxes, collecting illegal benefits, domestic assault, stupid antics in our youth that we'd like to forget. Not only things criminal, not only turpitude. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not a word that I use every day. Turpitude means things that are morally depraved or base. Think Anthony Weiner or the mayor of Toronto. <laughs> or our own secrets, less publicly compelling perhaps, but just as consuming and dangerous for us. Addictions, affairs, bad habits, choices we make that make us feel diminished even as we make them. Yes, I took those books out of the tiny library in my front yard over winter break, and I read not one but five harlequin romances over winter break. I hid them when people were coming until I realized this is part of who I am. <laughs> not only criminal, not only turpitude, but meanness, judging someone who needs compassion, maybe even ourselves yelling at or hitting our kids, snarling at strangers in traffic, wielding sarcasm like a knife, calling out the waitress, avoiding someone who reached out to us for care, giving someone the silent treatment, speaking in anger when we wish we'd shut our mouth. Not only things criminal, not only turpitude, but meanness and cowardice remaining silent when we see someone be bullied or silenced, cocooning ourselves when we want to be taking a risk, hiding from a person we don't want to see, staying out of the difficult conversations, deciding to just sit out the awkwardness of confronting oppression and leave that to others, telling our friend how we really feel and risking that the friendship will survive. Not only criminal, not only turpitude, but meanness and cowardice, but also situations which are simply ridiculous, where we play the fool, botching the report at work, knocking, knocking coffee into a stranger's lap, stammering like a sixth grader when we run into someone we're attracted to, saying something culturally insensitive, getting into an intense argument with a two-year-old, You've done that too. <laughs> Going blank at a critical moment, trying to look cool and realizing later we had toilet paper stuck to our shoe or a big grease stain on our shirt. Revealing our utter ignorance about politics or geography or history to someone we want to impress. If we have one person, just one, to whom we are willing to confess 
everything, then we love that person and our love will save us. The trick is that aside from criminal acts, many of our secrets don't start out as secrets. In one of the essential pieces of writing of 1970s feminism, and I found myself going back to these canon, canonical books for this sermon today. Her book on lies, secrets, and silence. Adrian Rich wrote in the essay, Women and Honor, Notes on Lying. She wrote, whatever is unnamed will become not merely unspoken, but unspeakable. And that is how we drift into secrets, I think. How something that might begin as a simple silence turns into a secret. It's unspoken, and it becomes unspeakable. I never meant to be in the closet when I came here in the 1980s as a religious educator. I was a young lesbian accustomed to being very open. But John Cummins, who was then the minister, resigned right when I arrived, and I didn't know how to navigate coming out with all the other changes going on in the church, so I didn't speak. And quickly, it became unspeakable. That time in the closet taught me so much about what it means to have a chronic secret day after day. I did some crowdsourcing on CLF, the Church of the Larger Fellowship's Facebook page, and asked the question, how does it feel in your body to carry a secret? And here are some of the answers I got. Antsy, like being stuck in a glass box. It always ends up affecting my stomach, twisting and churning, then my brain won't turn off so I can sleep. I'm always wondering if I should have said something different. The biggest issue is that it can take over everything. My mind and heart don't have room for anything else when it expands and permeates everything. It feels like a panic attack to me, chest tight, unable to take a deep breath, pinching. If it is a joyous secret, it makes your heart lift up and shoot sparks out of your eyes. If it is one too painful to share, it catches in the back of your throat, your shoulders tense and droop, your breathing is halting and shallow. A certain tightness in the throat that spreads to the shoulders and upper back and won't go away. Even if the secret is something there are good reasons to keep. It's electrifying, like energy racing through my body. I have to keep moving and avoid eye contact. Breathing is something I have to remember to do, and I wind up sighing a lot. Breathing is something I have to remember to do. With this energy racing that can take over everything, I don't want to look into people's eyes. These are all symptoms of acute secret keeping which actually a lot of them sound quite a bit like trauma symptoms to me. Adrian Rich's whole quote is this, whatever is unnamed, undepicted in images, whatever is omitted from biography, censored in collections of letters, whatever is misnamed as something else, made difficult to come by, whatever is buried in the memory by the collapse of meaning under an inadequate or lying language, this will become not merely unspoken, but unspeakable. 
Now, my time in the closet, wondering if everyone would hate me if they found out this truth and this secret, came crashing down one day, and some of you have heard this story, when Sharon Bishop, who was then a pillar of the church, who some of you knew in the flesh and others have heard about in memory, came into my DRE's office and said, am I crazy or are you a lesbian? you're not crazy. That was all I could say. Sharon, seeming not to even notice my reality, went on, well, I assumed that. I mean, the first time I ever saw you, and I know we talked about it at the board meeting before we hired you, but then you never seemed to want to talk about it, so I started to wonder. The board had talked about it? What I had thought was unnamed, omitted, censored, had been talked about? at a board meeting years ago now? So many secrets are like that. People are protecting each other from what we already know. After, Septem after September 11th, my then four-year-old school instructed us not to talk to the kids about the Twin Towers, not to talk about it. We lived in Washington, D.C., and this was very personal and intense for us. The teacher said, they wanted to protect those young kids, and they were confident it would not make it into their classroom. Well, I was dubious, but I didn't want to be the parent who wrecked their perfect order by having my kid out on the playground dispensing this knowledge. So I followed their advice, but in typical UU fashion, I kept asking questions like, did anything unusual happen at school? And Gia kept saying, no, no, nothing. The attacks were on a Tuesday, and school went on until... Friday morning, and I'd been out every night leading services at churches around Washington, D.C., which was on lockdown. Friday morning, Gia's school was canceled. I was staying home. So when I called Gia down to breakfast, Gia arrived with a backpack and hat and said, I want to eat on the airplane this morning, Mom. And I said, okay. And then I looked under Gia's arms where there were two books. One was an adult book with absolutely nothing that a kid, a four-year-old, would ever be able to identify, no images at all called Talking to Children About Death. <laughs> the other was a War Resisters League calendar. I looked at Gia and I said, we need to talk. And Gia said, what? I said, well, something kind of bad happened. What? Well, an airplane kind of went into a building. Actually, Mom, it was two airplanes that went into two buildings and someone did it on purpose. Why did they do it on purpose, Mom? So much for protecting the children. I had left Gia alone. I had followed orders to protect the other kids. We keep secrets to protect each other, and who, in the end, are we protecting? In this culture, there's a long list we could make of what is unnamed, omitted, censored, until it becomes unspeakable. In essence, a secret, whether in mainstream media or at a typical Minnesota nice potluck. Not only loneliness, but human suffering, all kinds of oppression, racism, classism, sexism, heterosexism, ableism, ageism, nationalism, cruelty, indifference, greed, fear for the planet, grief, the list goes on and on. I am no longer living in the closet as a lesbian in any part of my life, and yet every day I navigate whether or not to come out to people on planes or at the dog park or at the hair salon. Marriage equality won't change that. 
We are all, whatever our sexual orientation, deciding whether to come out multiple times every day, multiple times. And as someone who grew up in a family shrouded in silence, the big secret we all danced around was my father's violent temper. The default to shame clicked in for me early in life and then resonated with me as I carried other secrets or was in the closet. T.S. Eliot concludes his poem, if we have one person, just one, to whom we are willing to confess everything, then we love that person and our love will save us. Duke University researchers were shocked to discover that between 1985 and 2004, the number of people with whom the average American discussed important matters dropped from three to two. Even more stunning, the number of people who said there was no one with whom they discussed important matters tripled. In 2004, individuals without a single confidant were a quarter of the people surveyed. Now mind you, that's just important matters. That's not things criminal or turpitude or meanness or cowardice or playing the fool, that's just important matters. Jacqueline Olds and Richard Schwartz, psychiatrists, wrote in a book called The Lonely American Drifting Apart in the 21st Century, we began to notice how hard it was for our patients to talk about their isolation, which seemed to fill them with deep shame. We began to notice that most of our patients were more comfortable saying they were depressed than that they were lonely. Unfortunately, talking about loneliness in America is deeply stigmatized. We see ourselves as self-reliant people who do not whine about neediness. So maybe one secret which underlies many of our lives is this loneliness, which we are afraid to acknowledge. We want to show off beautiful plants in pots, not stand there with an empty bowl and say, I don't know what happened. Olds and Schwartz also lift up that there are more people living alone in the United States now than at any other time in history. Now, I do not equate living alone with loneliness or presume that everyone in a, re in a committed relationship feels that they can talk to that person about everything, including the relationship itself. No place is more lonely than a relationship without trust because it is also claustrophobic. It's a claustrophobic loneliness. We who grew up in families where we learned to be isolated from ourselves and each other need to work hard to create lives where we have one person, just one, to whom we're willing to confess everything. Now, T.S. Eliot wrote his poem without the useful research, which we can now access, from Brene Brown. Have people watched her TED Talks, any of you, about vulnerability? If you have not, I really recommend them. Brene, B-R-E-N-A, and... 10 million people have now watched them. She's done extensive research in shame and vulnerability and wholehearted living. Brown writes, shame needs three things to grow out of control in our lives, secrecy, silence, and judgment. When something shaming happens and we keep it locked up, it festers and grows, it consumes us. We need to share our experience. Brown says, shame happens between people and it heals between people. If we can find someone who has earned the right to hear our story, we need to tell it.
Shame loses power when it is spoken. Now, I don't live alone, but neither am I in a primary relationship right now. And I do not want to turn to my housemate, who is 17, to process <laughs> the pitfalls and challenges of my life, though we do have great conversations about important things. So for my life right now, I've structured in two phone calls a day with people I can talk to about pretty much anything. Early in the morning, I wake up and talk for half an hour with a friend and religious professional sister about the challenges of my day, yesterday and the day coming up, awkward situations at work, conversations I wish had gone differently, parenting challenging or questions, frustrations, whatever I need to process. And in the evening, I talk to another friend right before bed for a bit. Sometimes we pray or do other spiritual practices. These conversations tuck me into my life in a way that keeps me current, that keeps me naming things so they don't fester and turn into secrets or shame. I like Brene Brown's concept of telling people who have earned the right to hear our story. Brown says, our stories are not meant for everyone. Hearing them is a privilege, and we should always ask ourselves this before we share. Who has earned the right to hear my story? Or as T.S. Eliot would say, if we have one person, just one, to whom we're willing to confess everything, then we love that person and our love will save us. But what if we don't? What if our loneliness and isolation is the core secret in our life? I think that Brene Brown would say, and I would say that for our health and well-being, we need to make changes. We need to reach out. Brene Brown's research is about what people who live wholehearted lives do, and the main thing she talks about that they do is build what she calls shame resiliency. I'm here to say that if I can find my way out of the maze of distortion in a family where my mother literally spoke in a different voice if my father was in the room or if he wasn't, if I can build a life with openness and trust, anyone can. Now, I know you're saying, sure, Meg, but you have all these cool ministerial colleagues who can talk to you, and they've all been trained. And that's true, and I'm grateful for that every day. But I am humbled to tell you how long it took me to figure that out. For a long time, I showed off pots with flowers that grew from fake seeds rather than lift up the empty pot of who I really was to my colleagues, convinced that to show the emptiness would cause me to be hurt. Ministers can do that as much as anyone else. We can play whose church is going best, who's as biggest, who's as brightest. We can compare and judge and push each other away. In case anyone hasn't noticed, we are completely human. So there are ways for anyone to find someone to whom we can tell our truth and talk about our shame. I've joined a lot of support groups to find people worthy to hear my stories. Maybe you'll find these people in one of the small groups or classes here. This church is full of trustworthy people, but sitting in a large service listening or schmoozing in coffee hour will not let you build the relationship to tell them your story to determine if they are privileged and deserving of your story. So I encourage you, as you've been encouraged so many times here, to get into a small group here. Or maybe you're in one, or maybe you're in a 12-step group, or another place where people joyfully volunteer to talk to you every day or as much as you want 
as your sponsor, as your friend. Maybe there's someone you know who is also looks right now like they could use the kind of support you're looking for and you could ask them, as I did with my friends, hey, would you be up for a phone call every day? The worst they can say is no. I don't know your secrets, but I do know your longing. You're longing to be whole, you're longing to be happy, you're longing to do what you're here on the planet to do rather than using up your energy keeping secrets. Fundamentally, we come to church to remember who we are and to remember that we're not alone. We come to hold one another's biggest selves, to see each other as both imperfect and holy. This is a place that holds us, secrets and all, whether we dare to speak our truths or whether we take them with us to the grave. I'll close with these words, this challenge from Audre Lorde, also part of the second wave feminist canon. These words have accompanied me through every turn of my life's journey. And it occurred to me as I turned back to Adrienne Rich and Audre Lorde, both now dead, that these were initial teachers for me right at that time when I was changing from the closed person trying to pretend to be someone else to being a young adult committed to my own family, uh, my own family system, yeah, my own life. And so it made sense to me that I was turning back to them now for support. Lord wrote this in 1978 for a talk called The Transformation of Silence into Language and Action. It's collected in a fabulous book called Sister Outsider. You may have heard me say these words before because they were absolutely foundational for me. And she wrote this right after being given a cancer diagnosis. She wrote, in becoming forcibly and essentially aware of my mortality and of what I wished and wanted for my life, priorities and omissions became strongly etched in a merciless light, and what I regretted most were my silences. Of what had I ever been afraid? Death is the final silence, and that might be coming quickly now, without regard for whether I had ever spoken what needed to be said or had only betrayed myself into small silences while I planned someday to speak or waited for someone else's words. Within the war we are all waging with the forces of death, subtle and otherwise, conscious or not, I am not only a casualty, I am a warrior. And, and then she said this, and these words for years were just right over my computer. What are the words you do not yet have? What do you need to say? What are the tyrannies you swallow day by day and attempt to make them your own until you will sicken and die of them still in silence? Perhaps for some of you here today, I am the face of one of your fears. Because I am woman, because I am black, because I am a lesbian, because I am myself, a black woman warrior poet doing my work come to ask you, are you doing yours? Thus spoke the Lord, Audre Lord. <laughs> are you doing your work? Or then there are these other words, for you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. May it be so, blessed be, and amen. <laughs>